Hello, I'm Elena DelVal, and this is the HispanicNPR.com podcast. My guest today is author Susan J. Douglas. We will discuss her new book, In Our Prime, How Older Women Are Reinventing the Road Ahead. Susan is the Catherine Nefi Kellogg Professor and Arthur F. Thurnau Professor of Communication and Media at the University of Michigan. In Our Prime was recommended as the Editor's Choice Staff Picks by the New York Times and hailed by the Associated Press as a masterful takedown of gendered ageism. She is the author of Celebrity, A History of Fame, The Rise of Enlightened Sexism, How Pop Culture Took Us from Girl Power to Girls Gone Wild, The Mommy Myth, The Idealization of Motherhood and How It Undermines Women with Meredith Michaels, Listening In, Radio, and The American Imagination, which won the Hacker Prize in 2000 for the best popular book about technology and culture. Where the Girls Are, Growing Up Female with the Mass Media, and Inventing American Broadcasting, 1899 to 1922. Susan, welcome. Thanks so much for having me. What do you mean in the title when you say in our prime? What are you referring to? Well, I'm really trying to uh, combat um, decades-old stereotypes about older women that once they reach 50 or so, they're kind of washed up, (laughs) that they're fragile, um, you know, prone to uh, disease, uh, grumpy, uh, clueless about technology, um, you know, don't really have anything new or interesting to say, you know, a whole host of negative stereotypes about older women, when in fact, um, There are now more women over 50 in the United States than ever before in our history, and those women are, millions of them are vital, engaged, socially active, working longer, healthy, and happy, and many feel that they are, in fact, in their prime. So I really wanted to foreground that in the title itself. How many women are there over 50 in the United States. Do you have a number you can share with us? You know, I don't have a number, um, but uh, various figures uh, suggest that um, people, oh, people uh, not just women, but people over 50 um, are about 30% of the population right now. Um, because remember, we have that giant goiter in the population called the baby boom. Um, and they're kind of bookended by another uh, large generation, the millennials. Um, but, you know, there were, uh, you know, estimates vary. There were between 72 and 76 million baby boomers born between 1946 and 1964. Um, and half of those are women. So, you know, we have about um, 30 two million, give or take, um, baby boom women in the United States right now. You talked about millennials and baby boomers. And it's something that struck me the other day is how much discussion there is about generations as market segments and more, more than I remember when I was studying marketing and marketing segments. I don't recall there being so such sharp divisions and such 
distinct categorization, uh, even leading to sharp divisions in society. You talk a little bit about that in the book. Would you would you tell us more about that? Yeah, um, well, the baby boom generation was really the first generation to be actually given a name and to be designated by years, you know, 46 to 64. Some have argued it should be 42 to 64, but they they got a name um, because, you know, many had postponed uh, having children because of the Great Depression and then the war. And so, of course, there was this giant <laughs> explosion of, uh, you know, of babies, babies everywhere, you know, in the in the late 40s, 50s, and early 60s. Uh, and so it was a phenomenon. Um, but what's happened since then is, be, you know, in part, I, this is very much a marketing construct, because the baby boom um, was really the first generation to be named and to be specifically targeted to. Um, first with coonskin hats and all that stuff, via hula hoops in the 1960s when, uh, you know, we were little kids. And then later on, you know, a whole plethora of products for teenagers um, in the, um, you know, 60s and beyond. We were the generation that really invented the youth market. And so once that precedent got set, Subsequent generations came to be named and came to be stereotyped. You know, you had poor Gen X. They were stereotyped as flackers and, you know, apolitical. And, uh, you know, more recently you've had, um, you know, millennials. And now marketers are trying to figure out what to call the next group. Uh, the latest we've heard is Generation Z. But what happens when you get to the end of the alphabet? Anyhow, to, you know, to get to your point, um, there have been, as a result of trying to market to a vast cohort of people, um, broad generational stereotypes that cannot possibly apply to 72 to 76 million people. Um, those people vary by gender, age, race, ethnicity, geography, religion, sexuality, and yet we get all of these stereotypes, which I think have both driven um, some interesting and smart and important trends in marketing and others that have um, really stereotype groups in a way that I think have blinded um, marketers uh, to the complexity of generations. And as you know, I've written in the book about the way in which the baby boom generation, you know, once millennials were discovered in the 90s, baby boomers were kind of kicked to the curb, you know. Nobody cared about baby boomers anymore. And interestingly, both Advertising Age and Ad Week wrote a lot about this, uh, about marketers neglecting a huge portion of the population. And Nielsen actually did a major study in 2012 um, urging marketers uh, and advertisers to stop neglecting this population that actually had a lot of disposable income and wasn't only interested in um, – you know, recliner chairs and uh, denture cream. So um, I, there's a richness in these generations. Um, there's a lot of silliness about how they're stereotyped. And these stereotypes can blinder people to the, to the real diversity 
of these generations and also to what a really important market older women are in this country. If we look at those numbers that you shared, somewhere between 72 and 76 million baby boomers, I think was your estimate, and the total number of the population, it seems hard to imagine that anybody could just ignore such a huge segment of the population. How did that happen? You talk in the book, for example, about a lack of representation of older women in television programming and ads today. Is is that what you are referring to? Yeah, I mean, I think what, what happened when the baby boom became such a branded generation, um, how were things sold to us? We were targeted as different from our parents, which we were, hipper, cooler. We were branded as young. The youth market mattered. I mean, we were constructed as inventing the youth market. And so this bias towards the young really became ingrained in marketing, that young was cool and hip. And so once baby boomers, you know, started hitting 40 and then 50, we, this bias, this, um, you know, uh, preference towards youth marketing left, left us on the side of the road. And, you know, some of these, um, assumptions, as, as you know all too well in marketing and advertising, is that you want to get young people and get their brand loyalty set while they're teenagers. The assumption being that if you get somebody to like Coke as opposed to Pepsi, when they're 12 or 15, you have them for the rest of their lives. Um, and that's not true, you know. I mean, there's some truth to it, but that in part guides this important, um, you know, emphasis on trying to get young people while they're young. There's also an assumption that while young people don't have as much disposable income as older people do, they're more willing to part with it. And um, that's also not true. And, um, you know, and then there is just – uh, enormous ageism, you know, in our in our culture. It's one of the last acceptable biases. Uh, ageism is so ingrained into the Western warp of our culture uh, that people don't even see it. And there are all kinds of, you know, ageist assumptions and jokes everywhere. I mean, just, you know, go buy our greeting card and look at the, you know, racks of, oh, dear, you've turned 40, you've turned 50, you've turned 60. They're just filled with all of these ageist jokes because age, getting old is meant to be uh, uncool, not hip, not with it, decrepit, um, you know, out of shape, unhappy, miserable. And uh, so those kinds of biases, ageist biases, intersect with this notion that um, you really need to target younger people and get them while they're young. You'll have them for life, and they're willing to spend more money on things like, you know, computers or wine or, you know, travel, you name it, uh, when, in fact, older women spend money on all of those things uh, and more. Uh, and with very few exceptions, we're not uh, featured in advertising, except, of course, for all the big pharma ads. Talk a little bit more about ageism, if you would. 
that that seems to be underlying a lot of the premises that you discussed in the book in terms of women becoming invisible in society. So they're desirable once they reach their sexual maturity or perhaps a lot before that. And then all of a sudden, they're no longer of interest. Tell us a little bit more about that. Well, um, you know, ageism affects everybody, but it is uh, gendered ageism, ageism against older women, and the way in which ageism intersects with sexism, it's just a much more powerful bias against women uh, than uh, than men. You know, it's become a cliche that, you know, men allow, are allowed to become dignified once their temples, you know, turn gray, and women aren't, because women throughout their lives are judged for First and foremost, by their appearance throughout their entire lives. Men are not as harshly judged uh, by their appearances. I mean, you look at any, you know, Sunday talk show. Um, you look at how men in their 70s and 80s uh, can still be uh, television reporters and news anchors, and women can't. Uh, you think about how 60 and 70 year old men in movies are paired with love interests who are 30 years younger than they, you know, and there was a very, um, infamous anecdote several years ago when Maggie Gyllenhaal, who was 37 at the time, was told that she was too old to be the love interest of a 60 year old male lead. Um, I mean, this is, preposterous, you know, but um, because older women are judged by their appearance um, and, and and a youthful appearance is what matters much more for them than it does for men, you get invisibility, you get uh, erasures, and you get it um, in television shows, you get it in movies, um, you get it in news coverage, you get it in talk shows. Um, when there used to be magazines, uh, women's magazines, a few were still surviving, um, women over 40 were a major portion of the readership of those magazines, but they were never on the cover. Um, you know, when uh, Caitlyn Jenner at 65 became the first woman uh 65 or over on the cover of Vanity Fair, you know, the rest of us were like, oh, well, that's interesting. Um, so, you know, it's, it's because, um, women are judged so much by their appearance, uh, and gendered ageism is just so much harder on women uh, than it is on men that you see, um, these stereotypes and this kind of invisibility. Where does this ageism and invisibility and sexism who is judging women by the way they look and why are women focusing so much of their energy on appearing beautiful and perfect and young well a lot of this comes uh, obviously from the media and um you know uh, things are changing, and I will get to that in a minute, um, because, you know, uh, there's a very famous movie that I think everybody has seen that's quite wonderful with Betty Davis called All About Eve, you know, and it's about a star who's hitting 40, and, uh, you know, a, a conniving younger woman is trying to displace her. 
Well, by the time Betty Davis, one of the greatest actresses of the 20th century, you know, hit her early 50s, she couldn't get work. And, um, you know, neither could Joan Crawford, also a great, you know, Academy Award-winning actress. So in Hollywood, uh, in the, in the 50s and 60s, you know, basically once you hit 40, you were done. Um, unless you wanted to play a crone, uh, you know, like in Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, or a hospital patient, or, you know, a meddling battle axe grandmother. Those prejudices in the media have lasted for a very, very long time, which is why we've had, you know, so many, uh, you know, older men paired with uh, women in their 30s. I mean, some of this comes from the casting couch. This comes from Hollywood is a very, very male-dominated uh, industry still. Um, it's men making decisions uh, about uh, who gets to open movies, uh, who gets to be cast, Etc. These are, you know, decades long practices and biases. Now, having said that, one of the things, uh, I did write about in the book is what I'm calling visibility revolts because I think we are really at a turnstile moment now because there are so many women uh, over 50, 60, and beyond in our culture. And there are women, uh, famous, powerful, still beautiful women. You think of Jane Fonda, Meryl Streep, uh, Helen Mirren, Bette Midler, Diane Keaton, Oprah, Sally Field, Cher, uh, Rita Marino. Um, you know, these women uh, are refusing to be sidelined. They're refusing to be put out to pasture. They're still opening movies. And, you know, you have something like Grace and Frankie, which, you know, not only women over 40 and 50 are loving that that show, younger women are loving that show because it, it is giving them a vision of older women as fun, as empowered, um, as having love and sex. And so various of these women are, um, you know, insisting on uh, keeping working and being role models for younger women. Yeah, I mean, you know, you had Bette Midler, uh, over 70, you know, d- doing sellout shows as Hello Dolly, you know, in, in New York. Um, uh, various, Helen Mirren, um, still opening movies. Uh, Susan Sarandon as quote unquote the face, you know, of L'Oreal. Um, so at the same time that you have this legacy of negative stereotypes about older women, we are at a turnstile moment where uh, famous and, yes, still beautiful um, celebrities are out there saying, no, older women matter, older women still have a lot to say, and we're going to say it. What do you say to those people who say that these concepts of remaining young-looking and remaining, quote-unquote, beautiful are shallow and asking, well, what exactly are these older women contributing to society? 
for those people who look around and say, well, you know, these women, they haven't really done very much for us. The ones who can afford it are sitting in retirement of villages and really isolated from society. They're not really contributing anything to our lives. Why should we care about these older women? Why shouldn't they be invisible? Oh, well, boy, that's a jam-packed question. Um, let me break it into two parts. Um, you know, one is the insistence about um, looking young. And, again, this is such a bias in the media when uh, when many women anchors or reporters hit a certain age, they're let go, and they have to go to radio where people can't see them. Um, and because of the bias of having to continue to look young. And um, I, when Where the Girls Are came out, and I won't mention names, but I was interviewed by, by a very prominent um, female um, television personality. And after our on-air conversation, we had a very nice talk afterwards and she was really worried that she was going to have to have work done in order to keep her job. Uh, and she knew other women in the business who had had work done um, because if they didn't, they were going to lose their jobs. And let's remember, we are surrounded by a massive anti-aging industrial complex that uh, is bombarding women all the time uh, about uh, – getting rid of wrinkles, getting rid of eye bags, getting rid of puppet lines, getting rid of brown spots, defying aging, stopping aging, as if you can defy an ineluctable biological process from the moment, moment we're born, we're aging, right? And um, it happens to everybody. It is a totally democratic process. And so, it's hard not for women not to internalize this since we are so surrounded all the time with these messages that come out of this kind of bullhorn from the anti-aging industrial complex about getting rid of wrinkles um, and, you know, getting Botox and getting plastic surgery and defying aging. Uh, when, in fact, I mean, you know, sure. I look in the mirror and I'm like, oh, God, you know, I'd love the eye bags to go away. And on the other hand, you know what? I earned them. Um, I earned them from staying up too late and working on books. I earned them from having a baby that didn't sleep through the night and didn't really sleep until she was three years old. I earned them from probably, you know, drinking too much tequila with my brother, whatever. Um, I've earned them from having a life well lived. So the first part of your question is really about, you know, this pressure, on relentless pressure to look young. And then the second part of your question is, um, you know, the notion that older women are irrelevant. So, First of all, 33% of women 65 to 70 are still working, and 18% of women 70 to 75 are still 
working. Some of them are working because they love their jobs uh, and they feel like they have a lot to contribute, and some are working because they have to. Um, but they are out in the world. Um, in 2018, there were a lot of older women who were involved in helping uh women of their age or younger women get elected to to Congress. Uh, women were becoming very politically active. Um, women are still mentors and role models uh, in their workplaces. And yes, sure, there are women in retirement communities uh, who may not be doing much of anything, um, but there are also women in retirement communities who are volunteering in their religious organizations, who volunteer at hospitals, who are doing a host of constructive things that may not be paid labor, um, but they're, they're out there um, seeking to be active and engaged and um, and also very much involved with the younger generations. I think one of the things that's been quite noteworthy about the recent demonstrations around the country is how diverse they've been. They've been very diverse along um, racial and ethnic lines. They've also been diverse um, around age. There's been a, a big intergenerational uh, push, and uh, I, I think older women – uh, want to be involved with younger people, and I think younger people want the support of older people. How much of a role do women themselves play in supporting, or at least not combating, the societal ageism and sexism and misogyny that you talk about in the book? Well, you know, some older women have really been fighting back, you know, everyday older women. They've filed, uh, you know, lawsuits um, when they have evidence that they've been fired because of their age. Proving ageism as a um, reason for being dismissed from work is very difficult. Um, you need to have some kind of sets of emails or comments or texts that um, provide evidence that you were let go because of your age. But some women have gotten that uh, evidence, and they've used it, and they have won lawsuits, and they have been uh, reinstated. Um, we also do have older women who are not famous, um, who are continuing to work in public relations, continuing to be college presidents, continuing to be journalists and college professors, continuing to work in real estate, in all kinds of lines of work. Um, and they are, um, you know, in their just everyday activities of, um, you know, being energetic and uh, lively and, uh, you know, and full of spirit, providing examples that older women matter uh, and uh, care about their work and care about making the world a better place. I have a, a good friend, and again, I won't mention his name because he's very prominent in public relations. Um, and uh, I went to uh, meet him uh, in New York. We were going to go have a glass of wine. And um, so I went into his, um, you know, his, his large PR firm. 
And there was a gathering. They were celebrating something. I can't remember what it was. It might have been a launch of something. And there were a lot of women, not only over 50 there, but over 70, um, still uh, vibrant and, and doing their job. So, um, you know, sometimes it's hard when you're in a meeting and a younger person um, will look past you, uh, won't, won't um, listen to what you have to say, won't ask you a question, will interrupt you. And sometimes it's hard for older women to stand up for themselves and say, uh, wait a minute, I have a perspective on this. Um, let's remember women have, older women have decades and decades of experience. Um, and they've learned how to operate in the corporate world. They've learned how to operate in businesses and other kinds of institutions. And, um, you know, some of them are have some battle scars to prove it, but they've learned how to uh, not only survive, but to be very canny and productive. What do you say about the way that so many women have embraced uh, what you called diplomatically having work done, meaning all of the changes that women do to their bodies and to their appearance at an increasingly younger and younger age. Now we have girls that are prepubescent who are wearing makeup and dressing like adults and we have parents who are allowing that, and teenagers having plastic surgery to change their bodies and continue to do so as they age. Now women are painting their faces with a foundation that makes them look wrinkle-less, and the list goes on. Uh, dyeing their hair. How many women do we see out there in the media and otherwise who are wearing fake hair color and fake nails and painted on faces? What can you tell us about that? Well, <clears throat> uh to get to the, um, you know, young girls wearing makeup at every younger ages, um, there has been, um, and, and quite a few feminists have written about this with concern, there's been an increasing sexualization of girls at ever younger and younger ages. And, um, you know, I uh, talk about this when I when I'm lecturing here at Michigan, and I show my students uh, a picture of a, a a rack in in like a Target or someplace, and it's in the um, you know preschool area of clothing, and it's thongs thongs for toddlers and preschool girls. I mean, this kind of stuff is awful. Um, some Parents are horrified by it, and, and some permit it. I think it's a terrible trend. I think it's a dangerous trend. Um, and uh, so that is, you know, just one kind of, uh, you know, arm of uh, the uh, sexualization of girls and young women at ever younger ages. And I would think in the age of Me Too um, that that some you know, parents would actually discourage that as being, you know, dangerous. Now, as far as getting work done, and then you're totally right, young women 
through, um, you know, websites and, and uh, online magazines and the few of them who still actually read print, <laughs> um, they're being targeted at younger ages uh, to have what's called maintenance done. And maintenance is like start getting Botox you know, when you're 30. And there's a big Botox campaign now that shows all these 30-something women, you know, proudly, um, you know, endorsing having having your, the nerves in your face frozen <laughs> so you can look younger. Nobody knows what the long-term effects uh, of that are. Um, so I think that's uh, awful. Now, as women get older, when they're in their 50s, 60s, 70s, um, you know, there's really a debate about having work done. You know, on, on the one hand, if you have work done, are you simply kowtowing to, acquiescing to patriarchal standards of youth and beauty, right? Or are you... Um, empowering yourself using the available technology out there to look young so that you're continue to be taken seriously and can keep your job. And I think especially for women who are in the public eye, in the media, it's a tough debate about whether, you know, you have work done or not, um, because for some women um, it's essential. Now, of course, uh, there's a whole um kind of gossip area online uh and about uh women who've had work done and it's gone very wrong and there are a lot of snarky websites that then ridicule and make fun of women um who've had work done and they either um look you know have that kabuki mask look that's awful or they don't look like themselves anymore i mean after renee zellweger had work done people were like who are you um and when jennifer gray you know who has such a beautiful and distinctive face um and became a huge star in dirty dancing had her nose done she said she went into the surgery a celebrity and she came out anonymous so this kind of work can go very badly um and you know i mean for everyday women you know i mean again just using myself as an example on the one hand you know would I like to have the air taken out of these tires <laughs> that lie under my eyes? Sure. On the other hand, um, I am terrified of surgery, and I don't want to spend my money on it. I'd rather spend it on travel, when, once we can travel again, or on my wine habit, you know. So um, I think it has – it's the democratization of cosmetic surgery – has made this into a debate that my mother never had to engage with. And on the dying hair front, you know, it, that is something that is, it's less of a, um, you know, drastic action. You know, it doesn't, it's not surgery. You know, it's not somebody cutting into you and reshaping who you are. Um, it's coloring your hair. Now, some women like going gray and um you know and there's been a fad among you know here and there about women actually going uh, dying their hair gray prematurely <laughs> they feel they'll be taken more seriously 
But other women will say once they've gone gray, they feel much more invisible. Um, people treat them differently. So they've gone back to dyeing their hair. Um, so, you know, this is something every woman decides on her own. Um, I have friends who absolutely refuse to dye their hair, and their hair is this gorgeous gray or even white color that's really luxurious. And I have other friends who dye their hair, and they look great. So um, I think the hair dyeing part, because it's not cutting into your face and or your, you know, cutting into your body, it's just much much less of a, um, you know, acquiescence to trying to look young than uh, surgery is. Oh, I didn't mean just dyeing your hair in order to look younger. There is also a great many women who are dyeing their hair to look different, which was really the point I was trying to make. Oh, right. (laughs) Well, you know, um, there's... I mean, and young people do this all the time, especially, and they're not just going from, you know, brunette to blonde. They're dyeing their hair like bright blue or purple or, you know, red, and I don't mean redhead red, I mean scarlet. And, um, you know, it's not it's not an aesthetic that <laughs> I'm into, but a lot of people are doing it, and certainly older people are doing it. I think for them it's just like, you know what, this is fun. This is actually defying conventional kind of corporate-produced standards of appropriate hair color, and um, you know you see it. You see it especially a young, among younger people, but not only them. Is there a message from society and from fellow women to other women that there is a particular look? that is desirable and if you don't have that look then you're not good enough in your natural state and you need to change your nails change your hair have work done well look i think the um the plus side of so many of these older celebrities continuing to be visible uh, to make television shows, to make movies, uh, is that they are enacting these visibility revolts on behalf of all of us. They are making it clear that um, older women deserve to continue to be out there, to be role models, to be acknowledged successful actresses. The downside, of course, is that we don't look like them, you know. I didn't look like Jane Fonda when I was 20, and I sure as hell don't look like her now. Um, You know, many of us are just simply not as beautiful as Diane Keaton or Helen Mirren, um, you know, or Cher or Oprah, some of whom have had work done, some of whom haven't. And so because they are so visible and prominent, they do, whether you know, whether they mean to or not, and most of them don't mean to, set a standard for what an older woman should look like. And, you know, Jane Fonda is has had work done. She's admitted, admitted it. Um, she's still gorgeous. She's slim and always been slim. And it sets up a standard that the rest of us can't possibly meet. And so I, you know, and it's hard not to internalize that. So there is a kind of a standard out there for slimness and beauty. And, you know, and now on top of everything else, 
uh, we're supposed to still be sexy. I mean, please, can we, like, stop with that already? <laughs> How do you compare that, for example, some of the women that come to mind who are icons in their environment who have not had plastic surgery that some people might admire would include actresses like Judi Dench and Maggie Smith, uh, and I can't remember the other names, in the U.K. who have embraced their age and their appearance without having work done. Yeah, um, you know, Judy Dench is a great example. So is Helen Mirren. Mirren has said she has not done, had work done. Um, and, uh, you know, there's something interesting about, and Maggie Smith, as you rightly point out, there's something about the grand dame <laughs> um, category in Britain that we don't quite have here that I think offers a kind of armor to these women. Um, but, uh, you know, I mean, I look at Judy Dench. She's got wrinkles galore. I think she's so beautiful, you know. Um, and there is something about, you know, the owning your age thing that it, it seems a little bit more possible there. And I I can't put my finger quite on why, um, but it, it does happen in a way that I think is, is really um, admirable. And I guess what I would say is, you know, it's, and again, I'm a woman of a certain age, but when I, and I have friends of all ages, including young women, and I have friends who are 15 years and almost 20 years older than I am. And I I have to say, I think they're still beautiful. I think they're beautiful. And I think we as older women have to start thinking about ourselves that way and looking at our friends that way and thinking, wait, okay, maybe she has wrinkles. Uh, maybe she's got crow's feet, but wait, isn't she beautiful? That's, you know, that's what I'd say. One of the things that you talk about is that this generation of women over 50 has more independence and more resources than the generations before them. Wouldn't part of that power mean supporting more of these women who embrace their age and their natural appearance rather than supporting women who are embracing a vision that is artificial, that does not really exist, that nobody can live up to? Well, I'll speak from personal experience um, uh, of, of what I know. I know lots of older women who are supporting other women, um, you know, however they look, however much they weigh, <laughs> however many wrinkles they have. You know, there's enormous solidarity um, among older women, the older women that I know, and the older women that they know. And um, sure, I mean, I love watching Grace and Frankie, and I think it's funny and smart and tackles ageism, um, et cetera. And, you know, I love seeing these other older women who are celebrities or politicians, you know, Nancy Pelosi or Maxine Waters, um, still out there fighting the good fight. Um, but I do think that everyday women, we are um, – 
supporting each other. There is a great solidarity um, among us. And, you know, the one thing I'd say is, you know, research shows that older women are actually happier than women in their 20s. Um, you know, we have more time and energy to commit to family and, and, and friends. There's something that, that happens, I think, especially when you get into your 50s, 60s and beyond, where you really want to deepen the, the friendships and, and family ties and connections that you already have. And they're enormously gratifying and they really contribute, um, to women's happiness, uh, and their sense of, of fulfillment. So I, I do think that that is very much going on. But I would say something else, Elena, that, um, you know, I am a, privileged woman, you know, I'm still working, I'm a college professor, um, there are tens of millions of women, um, older women in this country who do not have that privilege. Um, they are, um, they're poor or they're working class, they're women of color, um, their social security is much less than men's because they uh, often had to take time out to care for children or older family members. They made less money throughout their lives, and so they don't have as much to retire on. And, uh, you know, for those of us who feel that um, feminism uh, doesn't stop when you're 50, that it's important for us to figure out how we can um, support these older women as as well um, as supporting each other when, you know, we do have um, resources and social networks to sustain us. Let's go back to something you said a minute ago. You talked about many of the women that you know being very supportive of women and many of these iconic women that you have mentioned uh, Jane Fonda and Helen Mirren and Bette Midler and Oprah and Cher being very supportive of other women. Can you be more specific in what ways exactly are you, do you have any numbers that you can share with us? Are there some of these women or others who have set up organizations or foundations or programs that support these women in their prime or women in general? What can you tell us about that? So um, Jane Fonda, for example, uh, has partnered with Gloria Steinem and Robin Morgan. Robin Morgan um, was the woman who organized the uh, feminist demonstrations at the uh, Miss America pageant um, back in 1968. And they have an organization on women in the media, and they do track um, uh, how the media cover women, including older women. And they, um, you know, and they issue a report um, almost every year. Um, and so that's a very uh, important organization. Um, the other thing that I haven't, the other celebrities, not maybe as famous, uh, that I haven't talked about, who I think matter actually quite a bit too, are online influencers. 
Um, you have Lynn Slater, who's in her mid-60s. She has over 500,000 Instagram followers. Um, you have a the fashion designer, Jenny Key, who's in her early 70s. She has 33,000 Instagram followers. Um, there's the former Playboy Bunny and fashion blogger, Dory Jacobson, who's in her mid-80s and has over 36,000 followers. Um, and there's Sarah Jane Adams, whose hashtag I love so much, my wrinkles are my stripes. She has 177,000 um, followers, and they blog and they post and people comment. And here's where you see um, women really supporting each other online, you know, online. We're supposedly older women are clueless about technology. No, they're not. They are on Instagram. They're on YouTube. They're on Twitter. Um, and uh, they're on the Internet. And you see these networks uh, out there, and, and some of them are about fashion because, you know, and when it comes to fashion, older women are pretty much ignored right, except maybe by Eileen Fisher, uh, and some of whom, and, and some of us can't afford her regular prices. We have to wait till she goes on sale. But, um, you know, you go to the mall when we could go to the mall, and it's all these clothes for 20-somethings. And so these fashion bloggers are celebrating older women's beauty, older women's uh, desire to, you know, have fun with clothes, and there, there are all kinds of support networks there. And, um, you know, I just think that, um, you know, marketers are just missing such a bet in ignoring, you know, 32 million women just because they're old. And, um, you know, I, I'll read you something from Dory Jacobson, um, who's, as I said, in her 80s. And, um, she is pictured in a sleeveless black dress in this post, and she says, I hate my arms. I think most women do. Um, but then she says she's decided to talk back to her inner, inner critic, that little voice inside my head that shames me into covering up my imperfections. And then she asks, do we need to be more accepting of our flaws? And she got so many comments for this positive, supportive comment. So, um, you know, those are just some examples of how women are really um, seeking to support each other. Also, I really want to do a shout-out to Katie Couric, not that she needs a shout-out from me, but, you know, she's been doing a lot of age acceptance stuff on her podcast, um, and she's getting an enormous amount of uh, attention and, and gratitude for that. Let's talk about the war on older women that you discuss in the book. This this is a big issue, I think. It's a huge issue. I mean, <clears throat> you know, um, my politics are um, basically that I do believe that the government has a responsibility to support the needy, to support those who do not have the resources to support themselves um, and to rectify uh, inequalities in wealth. And so 
that's where I'm coming from. So when I look at the decades-long battles uh, waged primarily by Republicans to um, either scale back or eliminate, privatize Social Security, eliminate uh, or privatize Medicare and Medicaid, one of the things that has not been pointed out nearly enough is that these are all wars against older women. Why do I say that? Women live longer than men. It's just an actuarial fact. Older women have less money than older men. Older women are more likely to be single and to live alone than older men. So when you try to gut Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid, that's a war on older women because these, all of these programs disproportionately support uh, and are used by older women. And so um, that is if this is a feminist issue, uh, these kind of support systems, uh, they can't be scaled back. They need to be strengthened. And there are very simple ways um, to strengthen Social Security and to strengthen Medicare and Medicaid instead of uh, seeking to gut them uh, or eliminate them. And so in that chapter, I really do uh, lay out um, how and why this has come to be a war on older women and why it's immoral. If we assume that the Republican Party has men and women, does that mean that there are women voting along these lines that you have described that are harmful to women? Uh, some women have, but the efforts in Congress to uh, scale back, defund, eliminate, they've been led primarily by men. And um, the uh, the studies that have, you know, and the propaganda that has supported all of this that's come out of places like the Heritage Foundation and the Cato Institute, those have been written primarily by men. Um, if you look at feminist economists, um, and here I will cite um, Heather Boucher in Washington, D.C., um, at the Center for Equitable Growth, she's done um, feminist economic analyses uh, about how these efforts actually um, hurt everybody because eventually society somehow, some way, you know, has to pick up the slack when support isn't there. And it's actually more costly than if you pro provided a bit more support, um, you know, to, to everybody. Now, um, there are uh, uh, women, you know, mostly white women, who have and will, um, you know, vote for more conservative representatives, um, and they may or may not be thinking about Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid. They may have other issues, right, that prompt them uh, to vote for these people. Um, but if you look at overall polling of women, they support in much, much greater numbers, um, and young people do too, by the way, strengthening uh, Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid. I'm looking at an article from The Guardian from 2018. 
says, half of white women continue to vote Republican. What's wrong with them? It seems to address some of the (laughs) issues that you've raised. And it says, surprisingly, that back in 1984, 62% of white women voted Republican for Ronald Reagan. And 56% in 2012 voted for Mitt Romney. 55% in 2004 for George W. Bush, and 53% voted for Donald Trump in the 2016 election. So is this about women and women voting against their own interests? Is this about wealth rather than gender? What can you tell us about that? Um, It's a variety of things, Um, and... um, you know, I'm not completely confident in those figures because um, we have had over the years a significant gender gap in which uh, women are much more inclined to and do vote Democratic than um, Republican. Now, some of that is because uh, African-American women and Latino women overwhelmingly, right, vote uh, democratic. So overall, you have had a gender gap, um, with women voting, you know, in significantly more numbers, um, for democratic candidates. However, there are white women who have very particular issues for, uh, wealthier white women. You're totally right. It's about preserving, um, wealth and not wanting their, uh, taxes raised, uh, wanting their taxes lowered. Um, some vote, uh, the same way that their husbands do for the same reason. Uh, some vote for conservative, um, uh, Republicans because, uh, of their, uh, attitudes about, um, abortion. Um, so there are a variety of, of complicating issues. Now, I think, you know, um, sometimes there are votes along, um, if the economy's doing well, people will vote for the incumbent, right? And so like in 84, um, after Reagan basically generated a major recession, um, in 1981-82, the economy rebounded from what was going on in the 70s, and so the economy was actually doing very well in 1984. If you have an incumbent and the uh, economy is doing very well, the incumbent is is usually going to win, and women are going to vote because for him because the economy is good. And um, and also, Walter Mondale didn't run a very good campaign. Um, so um, there are a variety of, of reasons having to do with, as you rightly suggest, um, racial privilege, class privilege, but also there are particular issues that some women, it's like they, they're one issue people and it's often um, abortion. How older women are reinventing the road ahead. What do you mean by that? Tell us more. Well, um, of course, I wrote I wrote this before, you know, COVID nineteen had us, you know, all locked up for a while. But if you go out in the world, older women are everywhere, um, 
at yoga studios, in restaurants, in bars, going to the movies, going to concerts, working, volunteering, um, traveling, um, everywhere. And um, we are out and about. We are a major economic force. We um, are a major political force, and we're a major cultural force. And I think um, – you know, you're especially now. There's so much else going on in our society, but uh, older women are are simply sick of um, these outdated stereotypes about older women as um, irrelevant, clueless about technology, uh, grumpy. Or, on the other hand, only uh, fit to be nurturing, cookie-baking grandmas, you know? Um, and so older women are. They're working longer than ever before. They're running in marathons. <laughs> they're teaching longer. Uh, they're running universities. Um, they're, they're uh, you know, working as journalists and, and realtors. And so in everyday life... Um, they are simply by their visibility, by their mentoring younger women, um, they are, and younger men for that matter, uh, they're reinventing uh, what it means to be an older women, woman from these older stereotypes to one of older women who are vital, who are in the world, uh, who are uh, developing uh, new ways of running their companies and their businesses, um, who are partnering with younger people. And so, um, and then when you have uh, older women, yes, they're beautiful celebrities, but they're older nonetheless, out there opening movies, opening uh, Broadway shows, still singing and performing. Um, you have a total reinvention of what it was like in the late 60s and the early 70s when there was something called disengagement theory, which meant that older people should just go off and, you know, uh, absent themselves from society and that it was better for them and better for society. Well, we're not interested in that. What resources or tips would you share with our listeners who want to learn more about this topic other than reading your book and listening to our discussion? Um, well, um, I mean, since we don't have that much time yet, I would say that um, in at the end of the book, um, there is a, a to-do list of the different kinds of things that older women can do, um, both individually and also collectively. And I, I do think especially now, Lena, one of the things that, um, that I do propose in the book and I think really matters is, um, is that we need to have much, um, more regular and stronger bridges with younger people. And what I'm advocating is that we start bridge clubs, not the card-playing kind, but that older women and younger women get together. And, of course, now it'll have to be outside and six feet apart or virtually. But listen to each other about what issues are of, con of concern to us, which ones overlap, how we can help each other. And I think younger women really uh, want to hear 
from older women about what it's like to be an older woman, you know, we're, uh, that, that we're happy, that we're engaged, that we have rich social lives, that we're, um, reading and thinking and, and active. They want a hopeful sign about what it's like to get older, given all of the negative stereotypes there are out there about aging for women. So I do think one really important thing is for, um, older women to begin connecting with younger women in whatever ways they can. Now, you know, I'm lucky I'm a college professor, and so I get to interact with younger women all the time um, whom I just love. They're they're so bright-faced and uh, energetic, and, and they want to connect with us. But I think there are all kinds of ways through church groups and religious organizations, um, you know, through civic groups, through political organizing, there's, there's all, uh, through work, um, through volunteer organizations, there's all kinds of ways for us to connect. And, um, I think the first step is consciousness raising and, and, and really talking to each other. Um, so there's that. And I, I know you have a lot of, um, high powered marketing and, uh, PR and media professionals among your audience, and I hope that they will think about us as an important group that matters, because, you know, if you're invisible in the media, it contributes to the notion that you don't matter, and if you are visible, it contributes to the notion that you do matter. Susan, thank you for joining us from Ann Arbor, Michigan. Thank you so much for having me. This has been fun. And to our audience, you have been listening to author Susan J. Douglas, who discussed her new book, In Our Prime, How Older Women Are Reinventing the Road Ahead. To propose a guest for the show, you can email me directly at editor at hispanicmpr.com. That's editor at hispanicmpr.com.